This is Wilderness and Wildlife presented by the Gallatin Wildlife Association in Bozeman, Montana. This is a half-hour program featuring commentaries and interviews with conservation specialists relating to the unique natural environment that we enjoy in the wildlands of the West and across America. I'm your host, Jay Shell. Our guest today is Patricia Kramer. Patricia holds her master's degree from Montana State University and her PhD in wildlife from the University of Florida. She works as a consultant and independent scholar with highway departments and other agencies all across the United States, helping to identify opportunities for safe crossings for wildlife on the nation's roads and highways. So welcome, Patty. It's great to be talking with you. So uh, let's start in just talking about what's the importance of providing safe passage for wildlife across the roads and highways. All right. Hello. It's nice to um, talk with all of you as well. Um, wildlife need to move just like we do. I am sitting on the southern end of the Gallatin Valley right now watching a, a flock of turkeys walking along. <laughs> so I think about the road, you know, US 191, the Gallatin Road down from Four Corners is a uh-huh. To get into water resources and food resources. So just like us, animals' homes are a little bit bigger, but they've got to go from their bedroom to the living room to the kitchen to go find family members down the road. And so they need to move to survive. And we see that often in the winter when, when animals come down into the valley from the mountains to try and find forage and out of the deep snow. So right. um, wildlife movements are just absolutely essential for their lives. And and like we even see things like monarch butterflies needing to go all the way to Mexico, and we need to provide them ways to get there without getting hit. So it's a it's something outside your window to the the whole big phenomenon of birds flying from the Arctic down to South America. Uh-huh. <clears throat> so what are what are the statistics of wildlife vehicle collisions? Oh, great. Um, so let me tell you a little bit about what we do with reporting wildlife vehicle collisions. Uh-huh. There's animal cases all the time, and often they don't get reported. So many of those deers, deer carcasses, and certainly the smaller animals you see, never wind up in crash statistics because the person that hit them didn't call the police because they didn't need to. And if a sure. trucker, somebody with an 18-wheeler drives, they don't want a, a police report of their crash, so they don't report. So when we talk about... Well, that vehicle collisions, there's the crashes that are reported to traffic safety, like sheriff's deputies and police and highway patrol. Then there's the carcasses laying on the side of the road of the animals we saw, we see that get hit that are never reported. And then it's just uh, this general phenomenon of wildlife vehicle conflict where animals can't get across the road or they get killed. So I'm, I'm doing a study that's working with um, 12 departments of transportation where they all chip in money and um, pay people to do the research. And one of the parts I'm doing is I'm finding a way to get the traffic safety engineers more involved because it's not just an environmental problem. So I censused every single state department of transportation and their traffic safety engineer. And I found out how many reported crashes there are in in their state, how many animal crashes are reported, and wildlife crashes. Mm -hmm. And what I found is that annually, um, in the past five years, annually we have about 347,000 reported animal crashes every year, which is about 5% of the total of all crashes. So that, right. that number, it's not real high. And as I just mentioned, it's just a fraction of what goes on because, you know, at least half of all crashes are not even reported. 
Right. I have, um, we did work in Utah, and um, Daniel Olson, when he was a graduate student there, um, he had people drive along the road in ATVs to see inside the right-of-way and the fencing between the road surface and the fence. And mm-hmm. he found 5.26 times more big animals laying there than were reported in crashes. So, right. um, yeah, if we could multiply that by five, we would get let's see, over 1.5 million crashes a year with just yeah. large animals alone. And so I assume that it's large animal collisions that are reported and and small animal collisions uh, or uh, uh, fatalities just aren't even noted most of the time. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. Like, you, for instance, uh, female turtles have to lay their eggs up on a berm on a dry area so that the eggs um, incubate in warm soil that's not moist. And so we lose a lot of female turtles all over the country. And all we see is spots in the road, and very few people are actually keeping track of that. So, yeah, um, the, the smaller animals, I think about how many of us have hit birds or squirrels. Um, it's, it's a major phenomenon. Uh, so is there, is there a ratio you, you have in mind of between interstate uh, collisions and state and uh, county highways or roads? Well, I'm looking at crashes in many western states right now. I'm working in right now. I'm working in Arizona and New Mexico, and I've looked at the crashes in Utah and Nevada and Idaho and South Dakota. And what we find is that traffic volume plays a role in becoming an impermeable barrier. So it turns out when we look at the crashes on the highways, the more you have traffic you have over 10,000 vehicles a day, which you'll have typically on the interstates in Montana near the big cities, the less dead animals you see because they don't, they stop trying or we've already killed them all off in the area. So it's the state highways and the local roads where you actually see more of the animals being killed um, than, in, than interstates, unless the interstates have lower traffic volumes below 10,000 vehicles per day. Right, right. So, um uh, what states have the worst statistics? Okay, okay. Well, we have. Um, I grouped this. I grouped the um, the statistics into four regions of the country: northeast, mm-hmm. southeast, midwest, and the west. And it turns out the Midwest has the greatest number of problems. Over three million reported crashes per year in the in the midwestern states. Uh-huh. And then the south the southeast is the second worst area. And then it turns out the West, we have the least amount of crashes. But the, the, the thing that we have is that we have some of the bigger animals like elk and moose that you don't want to hit, which cause severe accidents. And there is this movement, this understanding that the engineers and planners within transportation departments understand we want wildlife to exist in our states. And so they work to build wildlife crossing structures, not only for safety reasons, but to protect the herds of large animals and the carnivores and the other animals. Whereas the Midwest, although they'd like to try, <clears throat> they have white-tailed deer, which are very common and, and ubiquitous everywhere. And sometimes there'll be a hot spot that's because a farmer planted a certain crop. And if they were to put a wildlife crossing in there, it'd be on private land where, you know, the next year it could be a different crop that doesn't attract the animals or a subdivision. So it's very tricky in places that don't have public lands where you have permanent protection and herds of animals that you really do want to protect. And so what are the statistics 
are involving human injuries and and human fatalities. All right, let's see here. Um, so in my in my data, um, what I have a summary of easily put my finger on right now are the fatal crashes. Every year, on average, there's 202 fatal crashes involving animals. Now, some of them involve things like livestock, which is cows and horses, and sometimes people really swerve vigorously to avoid a dog and get dead. Um, so it's about 202 per year, and I don't have all the um, uh, the numbers in front of me for the injuries, but over 90% of crashes with wildlife are just property damage only, so wrecked vehicles or a dented headlight area. Um, but the ones that... Um, result in injuries uh, are very few, but of course, I'll give you an example. Um, there's a problem with elk in Montana on Interstate 90 south of Missoula, kind of east of Missoula near the Drummond area, and a man from Bozeman was driving his motorcycle there um, several years ago, and he hit an elk and died. And so for people like that, it's very unfortunate, and we, we want to avoid those those rare, kind of not totally rare, but sometimes predictable occurrences. Are the human deaths more common in the West or in the Midwest? Oh, that is a great question. All right. Holy mackerel. Let me, let me, I like, yeah, I, I'm looking at um, Michigan. Let's compare Michigan and Montana. Yeah. My, my frame of reference is Montana. So in Montana, we have on average 4.2 fatal accidents a year, which is not uh-huh. so great. In Michigan, it's 18.75. So, yeah, they, they and then the, the worst case for wildlife accidents are uh, animal vehicle collisions is Texas with thir- uh, about 31 per, per year, people, 31 crashes where people die. Those collisions in Michigan would be with, with deer, right? Yes, white-tailed deer, yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, okay. And uh, what, about, what about vehicle damage costs? Um. So this is really interesting because the, the the I have to explain a little bit about the the way money flows to come back to that question. So when we pay for gas at the pumps, there's a tax set on our gasoline, typically per gallon, about 25 cents a gallon. That money goes back to the federal government, and it's managed by federal highways. And it, federal highways will give it back to the states. And I can tell you, in a state like Montana, we get more money per person than, say, a more crowded state because. Um, we've got a lot of roads and very few people. And so um, federal highways tells the states, hey, let's put a value on a human life and, and, and all the way down, all the injuries and then to a crash. So typically, federal highway says that a crash that's just property damage only averages about $11,000 a year. Oh, and then every, every state tweaks that number to match whatever they're doing. And it, it's about... Um, it's about working benefit cost equations to, to, so that you're not putting all your money in one place. But in here in Montana, um, oh, it's very close. Um, it's 10,800 per property damage. When you go to injuries, you can, the injuries start at 67,000 and go up to serious injury of 326 and then a human life. In Montana, you, they use the number about 6 million and in federal highways, they use the number 11 million. Um, wow. It's not that Montana's lives are worth any less. It's just how they work the numbers so that they're not addressing areas. Um, they don't get pulled to the areas where the fatal crashes are. So mm-hmm. it gives you an idea. One person's death, although tragic, can also b- draw attention to the cost of what that was for their families and 
and the medical attention and, and the, the wreckage of the vehicle. So this talk is kind of centered on numbers, but if you like numbers, this is a, this is a perfect opportunity to sit there and add it up, what the numbers are all the time. In Montana, um, I added those numbers up. Let me just see here. For animal vehicle collisions in Montana, over $100 million a year in reported crashes on average. Wow. So wow. That's, that's serious. I guess. What species, is, in the Midwestern states, it's deer that are usually involved in the collisions. What large animals are, uh, are predominantly collided with in the Western states, or particularly Montana? It, most people will guess, and they're probably right, that it's mule deer is the number one animal that collides with vehicles and causes crashes. But in my analysis, I'm finding that there are hotspots around the West where elk are the major problem area. In fact, we were just working the numbers in New Mexico. The number one crash area for crashes per mile in New Mexico is in southern New Mexico in the Sacramento Mountains, and it's all almost solely with elk. Um, I don't, I don't know that number offhand, but um, there, and there's many places in Arizona um, that elk are the number one problem. Think of areas outside of Flagstaff and north of Phoenix, and so their solutions are very different than mule deer solutions. So it's always important to know what the species is because it's real hard. We call elk the problem child. I do <laughs> because it, you can't get them to go through a culvert. You know, you might get one, two, or three, but you can't get a herd of a thousand elk to go through a culvert. So right. you think. Think of areas like the Madison Valley in the wintertime when the elk come down with the snows in November, and you've probably seen some of those those movies on the internet on um, just thousands of elk crossing the highway down there. Um, uh, just phenomenal. You, we really do have to accommodate big migrations, and elk will not do them through culverts. So uh, bear and mountain lion are not, not frequently involved in uh, collisions, is that right? No, they're not. I mean, we do have them in all Western states, but um, I've been parsing the data out in places like New Mexico and other places that have um, a good uh, database where the reporting officer um, reports the animal. And we typically have um, black bear in mountainous areas and uh, mountain lion also follow the prey species. But we sent um, we sent some field teams out in the New Mexico project and found that existing culverts are great conduits for bear, and they're much more willing to go through kind of a long, dark cave than a mule deer. And so they've found ways to move across the ecosystem where they're not getting hit as much more easily than the ungulates are. And what about the eastern states? Don't they have frequent collisions with bears and, and uh, puma? Well, there's very few puma in the east. We have Florida panthers, and Florida panthers <laughs> are is the number one species for wildlife crossings in Florida for decades. Florida was the leader in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s for the number of wildlife crossings. They were, they were like 75 when, you know, Montana had a dozen back in the old days. And so, yes, the Florida panther has been a major reason for many wildlife crossings to get an endangered species across the landscape. But they're, they're the only state that's made a crossing structure for that carnivore in the East Coast. And what's really interesting is that the Appalachian Mountains in Tennessee have elk. They were reintroduced about a decade ago. And now we're seeing <laughs> problem areas where the elk are getting hit in places they've been reintroduced. So um, there are um, black bear getting hit in the Appalachian Mountains as well, but their numbers are not as high. Another part is the floodplain. 
the coastal plain of North Carolina, a new, road, a new highway, um, Interstate 64, went in and they made crossing structures specifically for black bear there. Are there animals that are permanently isolated because of uh, the construction, particularly the interstate system, because oh. of highway interference? Oh, absolutely. There are species. I have a picture of San Joaquin Kit Fox in California. Very endangered species. And they've got a burrow right alongside a busy highway, and they're just sitting there watching the cars go by and looking up at the fence that's kind of blocked yeah. them in. And so that's just an example of one endangered species. But you think about um, in the eastern states and the Midwest, there's all kinds of turtles, like blanding turtles, for instance, that, that are isolated, and they um, they get some kinds of protections, even like um, rattlesnakes and indigo snakes in the east. Um, the Fish and Wildlife Service will come in and say, listen, that road has isolated this population. When you redo the road or you put in a new road, you will put in crossing structures for these reptiles. So believe it or not, um, well, I guess it would make sense if you understand how the Fish and Wildlife Service works with carrots and sticks, and a lot of times it could be a stick for the agencies that create transportation structures. They come in and they say, you shall do something for this protected species, and that's how we get wildlife crossings for all these isolated populations of small animals in particular. So what states are the most serious? Uh, conversely, what are those that are least serious about uh, providing, addressing the problem? Well, there is definitely a continuum. And uh, I did a survey, actually, I guess you would say a census again, um, in 2004, 5, and 6, where I looked at every state, talked to people in every state. We took every province, province in, in Canada, and we found out all their wildlife crossings, like 12 years ago. And... Basically, the Midwestern states typically have the least amount of wildlife crossing structures because the deer are ubiquitous and they don't know how to solve the problem. And white-tailed uh -huh. deer, deer are they're more expendable in our society because there's more of them. So sometimes the solution is to send sharpshooters into towns and, and shoot the deer in town rather than have them get hit. So that's what the Midwest is. Then you have a continuum all the way up to... Um, states like Wyoming, they are voting with their money. The Wildlife Agency's commission has approved millions of dollars to be added to the Department of Transportation budget for wildlife crossing structures, and they've gotten dozens of them in in prime migration areas. So Wyoming's one of the leaders. Montana was were leaders, um, and there's there's a little bit of a pendulum thing going on there. Uh, there are great people within Montana Department of Transportation are trying to get more wildlife crossings, but the people within the agency have decided that their, their priorities lie other places and not as strongly as they did when US-93 was two, from two to four lanes. So they're trying. They've got a structure they put in full bighorn sheep and Thompson Falls and smaller things here and there. And then you have Colorado. One of the things that's going on in the West, which I'm really proud of my colleagues, is, is an example from Colorado where the two agencies, the Wildlife Agency and the DOT, They've learned to work together and have regular meetings at minimum four times a year. And then they talk about what can be done from moving variable message boards around to warn drivers to pulling their resources together to get money um, for wildlife crossing structures. So Colorado's doing a great job. Montana's trying to um, work the two agencies together. Utah's doing a great job. Um, Arizona has done a fabulous job, but they're having a little bit of pendulum swinging back the other way. But... Now we're seeing, if you, if you know anything about um, Tucson, it's in, it's in Pima County, and the people there decided to tax themselves for wildlife connectivity 
and they built wildlife crossing structures with ADOT. So um, people have to decide if it's a priority because the funds are limited and there's just so much they can do. So how long does the process take from the time a highway department decides they need to address the problem until they get a completed structure? Very good question, because if you want to do something for wildlife and you want to work with the Department of Transportation, you have to understand that time is money. And um, those of us that care about wildlife, we can't come into a DOT and say, hey, I see the bulldozer starting to plow the side of the road there. It looks like you're going to put another lane in. What about a wildlife crossing structure? It's too late. You have to get in five to ten years ahead of time. And one of the ways you can do that is to work with your metropolitan planning organization or your regional planning organization, which says, hey, we want to do something for wildlife. And they, in turn, help influence the DOT. But we do have a wonderful example of citizens helping the DOT get a structure in Utah. Um, the citizens in the mountains east of Salt Lake City in the, in the Park City area really were, they were demoralized seeing their neighbors, the, the moose neighbors, splattered on Interstate 80. And so they pressured UDOT to get a, an overpass when there was going to be an upcoming project in a climbing lane at the top of Parley Summit. And so um, UDOT considered it, and then the, the, the private citizens formed a nonprofit and they started raising money. And initially, they raised over $50,000 to help place tents along the highway to get the animals to some structures, and then they actually helped pay for continued construction. And so the, the very famous um, videos that are going around the Internet of wild animals using a very narrow 45-foot overpass, that came about because citizens got involved with the DOT, and um, Carlos Braceros, the director, was very open about working with the public. So it is possible but you've got to get in at least five years ahead of time. All right. So what are the various kinds of structures or crossings that are being used these days? Okay. So we have underpasses and overpasses. Overpasses, when the animals go above the highway, they get a lot of um, coverage. Um, in Montana, we have an overpass on US-93 north of Missoula. It's the only one we've got, but, you know, we have hope for more. But there's only maybe two dozen of them in the entire United States, so they're not very typical. And then those can go over a two-lane road very easily on, like, 93, or they can go over an interstate like the Parley Summit one in Utah. Then we have underpasses. That's when the animals go under the road. They can be going under a bridge or through a culvert. The bridges work best for skittish species like elk because they want – basically, if you think like a prey animal, they want um, – they want to escape. And so when I, when I look at, I do research on wildlife crossing structures and my statistical analysis found that the length is the most important part of it and you want to keep them short. The second most important dimension is width. So basically the prey animals want a short, wide structure to run underneath and they don't have to worry about a puma in there. And so the culvert should be kept short and, and not too uh, cave-like. And then the other thing that we can do with DOTs is, is give them confidence to retrofit existing structures. So that's when you put in um, a shelf in a small culvert to allow a raccoon and other small animals to move through the smaller culvert underneath the road that has water in it part of the year and they can't get through the water. Or you take eight-foot-high fence and you put it to an existing bridge that would easily um, accommodate elk or mule deer or black bear to go underneath the highway. So you didn't have to build a new structure you just guided them to what was there. So there's different ways to do it. 
And for small animals, are there different kinds of facilities that are developed? Yes, um, smaller animals, they need cover, just like a big prey animal. And so if you had smaller culverts, they would probably feel a bit more comfortable. Or if logs and stumps could be placed inside or along a structure, they can jump from place to place and move along. And, and, th- and the videos of the Parley Summit overpass showed that if, just, if you just had some rocks and some logs, uh, squirrels and marmots are running from one to the other, exploring the new overpass and seeing that they can get across. So cover or think like an animal and, and you've got some solutions. What kind of innovations or structural developments have been occurring recently? Okay. Well, there's been, um, uh, there was a competition about seven years ago um, to look to building an overpass on the, on the Vale overpa- um, Summit in Colorado um, with Interstate 70. And one of the uh, design requirements was a repeatable um, uh, structure uh, components. So if you think about Legos or you think, think about an hexagonal or octagonal shape, and if you could build the structure with those cookie-cutter designs, multiple ones along the way, you could possibly um, reduce the, um, the cost um, of building it because you could have these little pods of things already made and you lay them in place. The other thing that's always done, we haven't seen a whole lot of the, the forward-thinking, repeatable Lego-type uh, overpasses, but what we see is prefabricated arches that are made out of concrete that are made by a company here in the United States. And it turns out part of the big cost of wildlife crossing structures is um, rerouting traffic around the construction site. So these prefab arches are right over the road, and they're, they're well, you know, 20 feet above, 50 feet above the road. And they are, so they're already made, they're just placed on bases along the road and you and basically put a tunnel over the traffic. So that's worked very well across the United States. Mm. And then there's other things like um, noise reducing asphalt in these areas. There's um, different ways to strengthen tensile strength of the concrete, which is kind of engineer type um, work that's being done. But yes, people are trying to be creative and realize that an overpass for wildlife doesn't have to support as much heavy equipment like an overpass for traffic would, and so you could build them a little more lightly. So uh, we're getting short on time, but I wanted you to uh, talk about fencing and landscaping on these structures. Oh, okay. Well, you know, I, I love to be proved wrong, and so often us humans are trying to hypothesize what the animals like. And the, the overpass in Utah is a perfect example where we really pushed, myself and others, for some native grasses on there. And the consulting company said no. And so I was amazed that the animals are using something that has just rocks and stumps. So landscaping is important to entice animals to go through. So we need a little bit of bushes and something natural for them to feel like this is where they belong. And then fences, of, as much as I don't like them, Sometimes we need even just a little bit of wing fence to show the animals where the opportunities are so they don't run the gamut across the interstate. Right, right. Is the cost of the fencing capable for most uh, entities, or is it expensive? So the fence is usually eight feet high to keep the elk and the mule deer from jumping into the road. So that fence, the fence runs about $100,000 a mile for both sides of the road. So both sides of the road, one mile is about 100,000. It can go as high as 300,000 if it's a very rocky and hilly terrain. Then if you have like a tortoise that you want to keep from going through the holes in the fence, you have to put some, some smaller mesh on the bottom 
three feet to right, keep small. Right. So uh, I've understood that you, you need about uh, two miles of fence running out from each side of the of the overpass when you build an overpass. Is that what you figure? Um, everything I, I talk about when you when you talk about what you need for wildlife in a specific place, it's really a prescription, just like a doctor would write a prescription for one person for a certain health problem. Okay. It it depends. Like I researched wildlife crossing structures on US 93 south of Missoula, and we had uh-huh. white-tailed deer there, and we had just wing fencing a couple hundred feet, and they still use the structure, and the vehicle collisions oh. went. But if oh, you good. get it in the side, if you get it in the right place, like if you're trying to capture a mule deer migration or pronghorn, if you get it where they normally would go, you need very little fence because they were already going to toward it in, to begin with. Was was Banff the first uh, to build over crossings over highways? We don't know. I, I did a lot of research here in the United States, and the first one in the United States was in 1975 in Utah, over Interstate 15. So when we started building interstates was when we started doing wildlife crossings. I didn't do my homework for France, and I'm not sure. I was there and was amazed to see a bat tunnel over the interstate. So they they get very innovative, and I'm not sure when they began. Well, Patty, I think we have run out of time. Uh, So our guest today has been Patricia Kramer. She's a uh, private consultant who's been working with highway departments to provide for safe crossing structures for wildlife over the interstates and other highways. This has been Wilderness and Wildlife, a presentation of the Gallatin Wildlife Association in Bozeman, Montana. To hear more of these half-hour interviews, go to Wilderness and Wildlife or go online to jswilderness5.net and see additional features on our, on our website. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Jay Shell.